Would you like to find Paul's letter to the Romans? Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. You therefore, Paul says, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? For, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. In chapter 1, we've seen how Paul is delighting, thrilling to the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He means precisely that. Other people might be embarrassed to admit that they believe this, but he is not embarrassed. And not only is he not ashamed, he is proud of it, he boasts in it, he delights in it, because... He's aware of its power. It's a power that has changed his own life. Turned him right round. He's he's known God do things in his life that he never thought possible. He's been rescued out of what he was convinced was right and God showed him how wrong he was and now he knows the truth. His life is transformed as he shares this gospel with others. He's seen countless other lives transformed. So he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's God's power for salvation. And then he goes on to speak about what really makes this gospel powerful, what makes it so relevant to everyone. It's about, he says, righteousness from God. And he goes on to show show how people desperately need righteousness. That is, they need a right standing with God because everyone has disobeyed God. And he outlines how people have willfully rejected what God has made known, turned to other things, and so uh, are earning God's wrath. But there's a way of righteousness from God that is something that everyone needs. So he's thrilled with this. He, he outlines uh, just how people have sinned in verses 19 through to 32 of chapter 1. And as he speaks about how people have suppressed the truth, they've ignored what God has made clear, God has been, they've been given over into further sin and so on. All the time he's speaking about what they have done. He's speaking about them. In chapter 2, verse 1, there's a sudden switch from them to you. You, therefore, have no excuse. 
Now people then discuss, well, who is he talking about here in chapter 2 when he refers to you and uh, ink gets spilled on this subject? Is he talking about righteous Gentiles? Is he talking about the Jews? Certainly by verse 17 of chapter 2 he's going to say, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, he's going to address the Jews. But basically, surely, at least, in in chapter 2, in chapter 1 he's been speaking about them, So in chapter 2, he's addressing anyone who doesn't reckon that they're one of them. The ones that are spoken about in chapter 1. Those who, who are listening to Paul and hearing what he's saying, understanding what he's saying, seeing how justified it all is that he should speak about them in that way. People who approve of what he's saying, don't identify with them, he now turns to them. You, therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. So, Paul is assuming then that as this letter is read out, his listeners are agreeing with what he's saying. They're agreeing with his analysis of what the world is like. As we looked at chapter 1, we said if we ask ourselves, why is society as it is? This is the reason. Why is our nation as it is? This is the reason. Here's an analysis of what happens when people opt for secularism, when people don't think it's appropriate to believe in God anymore, when the God that they have believed in is a God of the gaps. As the gaps get smaller, we know more and more, no need for God, we will live without God, we'll make our own way. That's the sort of thing that he's speaking about in chapter 1, and then you see the progressive downward spiral as people are given over to what they have chosen, which is a life without God. So, he's assuming that his listeners have heard all of that. There they are in Rome. That is what Rome is like. It's all around them. And they're thinking, yes, Paul, we agree with you. Now we understand it. You're making it so clear. All of this is happening because they don't know God. We understand. And so he assumes that they're nodding in agreement, they're understanding what he's saying, and feel that this is a really uh, sharp analysis of ungodly behaviour. And then he pounces and says, well, your very agreement actually removes any excuse from you. You, therefore, have no excuse you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same thing. Here Paul is drawing attention to a snare for, in quotes, righteous people. It always has been a snare, and it remains a snare. People who assume they are righteous... This is a very real snare, a very real possibility for them. In the final verse of chapter 1, verse 32, remember Paul has drawn attention to them that they not only do things that deserve death, they also approve of those who do them. They do them and they approve. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, you disapprove and yet you do. You do the very things. It's the the opposite, really, the mirror image of verse 32 in chapter 1. There are people who do things and yet also approve. He says, you disapprove 
And yet you also do. You do the very things you disapprove of. This kind of blindness, obviously, is very common. It's all too easy, isn't it, to be sharply critical of the faults we see in others, the errors, the blind spots that we see in others, sharply critical and kind of very understanding of our own faults. Very sympathetic towards ourselves because we're aware of all the extenuating circumstances, the reasons why we are as we are, and we, we can be very tolerant, very understanding, very sympathetic towards ourselves, and yet very quick to see where other people are going wrong. This happens. In John chapter 8, you have a, a terrible example of that in, in the ministry of Jesus, that the righteous people have brought to him a woman who has been caught in sin. So there they are. They are righteous. This woman is a sinner, caught in the act of adultery. They bring her to Jesus to test him. What, what should we do? The, the law says she should be stoned. What do you say? Jesus' answer really points to this very issue that we're looking at. He said, If any one of you is without sin... Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. They're aware of her sin. It is blatant. What they're not aware of, until Jesus draws their attention to it, is their own. Her sin is flagrant. Theirs, forgivable, understandable. No one's perfect, are they? Now Jesus says, wait a minute. Before you point to her, what about yourself? They at least have the decency to acknowledge that what he's saying is right. It's all too easy to be aware of other people. It happens, I guess, every Sunday that we are here. Regardless of who is preaching, we can be listening and there's always the temptation when we're hearing it to say, I'm so glad so-and-so's here this morning. I hope they're hearing this. We, we hear for other people. We see how other people need it and we think, oh, I'm so glad they came. This is just the message for them. Yeah, but what about you? And we can be aware of others and just think, well, I don't need this. And we fall into the same snare. And in any event, you know, Paul there has been outlining pretty outrageous behavior in chapter 1, and it would be very easy to say, but we don't do those things. We love God. We're, uh, we, we believe God's word. We don't act like that. We are aware it's in society around us, but please, sir, we don't do those things. We're not like that. How can you say that we are condemning ourselves because we do the same things. Well, then, of course, we need to remember what Jesus said the, when in, in various Gospels. But so look in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 5 and verse 21. He said, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, Don't, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. 
And then he goes on to say, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus takes the commandments and he makes them internal. It's not just a matter of your actions, it's a matter of your heart. The law is spiritual, Paul tells us in his letter to the Romans. And if we miss that, we can say, well, I haven't done this and I haven't done that. Yeah, but what about the state of our heart? We need to see that the law of God points inwards. But it's so easy to miss our own faults. A a dramatic example of that in the Old Testament, in uh, 2 Samuel, an incident in the life of King David. The context, sure you know the story well, David is now established as king, is very powerful, very successful. So successful that he has people who just do his bidding and so they're out doing the work. Battles to be fought, territory to be won, he's in his palace. You know the story, he sees a woman who is another man's wife He takes her, commits adultery with her, and then gets her husband killed. No one seems to know about it. He's got away with it. Then, 2 Samuel 12, the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David. And Nathan tells a story of two men, one rich, one poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. The poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb. He raised it grew up with him and his children, shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man. But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David, here's the story. He's outraged by this. Just as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. And he sort of calms down a bit and said, well, he must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Right sense of moral uh, uh, indignation at this terrible action. Then David said, you're the man. David could have had the pick of all the women. Instead, he took the wife of a guy who loved her dearly. You're the man. He's got a sense of moral indignation about in this story, but oblivious, very understanding about his own condition. It happens. It happens again and again. The prophet Amos, we won't look at it now, but you read the story of Amos. Amos is bringing God's word to Israel, the northern kingdom. Remember, the kingdom divided Israel in the north, Judah in the south. He's bringing the word of God to Israel. But before he does that, he first of all stands up there in Israel and prophesies against all the nations around. He prophesies uh, against Damascus, against Gaza, against Edom, against Moab. And what they should have realized was he's kind of circling and and drawing in. And then he comes to Judah, their their neighbor. And they're listening to all of this. And suddenly, the word of the Lord against Israel. It's pleasant to hear everyone else exposed, but then it's them. It is so, so common 
to see the faults of others and miss our own. As I've been looking at that this week, obviously I've been thinking around it a lot and I've realised um, some unpleasant things about myself. I guess because you watch me, you know all the unpleasant things about me and you miss your own. But anyway, because I was thinking, as a pastor, as a leader of a church, obviously I'm, I'm responsible to oversee the church. I'm responsible then to have, I suppose, an opinion about everyone. Wouldn't you love to know what it is about you? But anyway, I, to have an opinion about everyone and to be aware of what's happening as far as I can be aware of things that are happening in people's lives and see that area, oh God, will you help them on that and, and so on. Aware of all of that. And I thought, it is so dangerous to just live at that level of concern for other people, caring about other people. Yeah, but what about me? I can see that weakness in that person. What about that weakness in me? I can see how they're doing. What about what I'm doing? So I'll tell you, I've had a very uncomfortable week preparing this message, so I'm now going to dump it all on you. <laughs> it's so common, it's so easy to slip into that. And Paul just assumes that they will have slipped into it as he's outlining the faults of all the people around. And they're nodding, oh yes, it's like that. And well, what about you? You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. This is a snare for people who regard themselves as righteous. And so he then actually then delivers a bit of a shock to them. He says, for at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, yet do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Now that's a bit of a shock. Because they assume that they have escaped God's judgment. They assume they're God's people, and this is a critique of those who are not God's people. Those who are not God's people are very obviously sinners and they need salvation. They need the gospel. But we, his hearers could assume, we have believed the gospel. We have no judgment to fear. We are safe. We indeed are saved. Now, undoubtedly, they are saved. But nonetheless, he says, do you think you will escape God's judgment. Now, that's a shock. Judgment isn't just for them in chapter 1. Judgment, Paul says, is for everybody. Judgment is for us as well. In verse 16, he refers to the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Paul says, this is a fundamental part of my gospel. There will be a day of judgment and we will all be involved. There are no exemptions. God punishes sin. Well, that's a shock. Maybe they thought, no, Jesus was punished in our place. We will never be punished. 
Certainly Jesus was punished in our place. Certainly he took the wrath of God against our sin. Certainly because of the death of Jesus, his substitution dying in our place, we know we will be saved. There is now therefore, he says in chapter 8, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is absolutely clear. But no condemnation is not the same as no judgment. God punishes sin and God punishes sin wherever it is and that includes our sin. I'm I'm not sure of this. I, I thought all punishment had passed over. I thought it all went on to Jesus and therefore I need fear no punishment. Well then we need to see what the New Testament actually says. How about 1 Corinthians chapter 11? 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 31 where Paul is addressing some bad behaviour in Corinth and in particular how they come to the Lord's table, how they come to communion. And he says in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 31 if we judged ourselves, we wouldn't come under judgment. When we're judged by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. That's it. We will not be condemned with the world. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But there's still discipline. And there is still a judgment, therefore. These people in Corinth, Christians, are misbehaving in the way they come to the Lord's table and they're being judged. It appears certainly that some of them have become ill as a result of this and then it it appears that some have died. It says, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Now it could be that they have contracted some sleeping disease but more likely some have died. Judged. Christians. Of course, you see the same thing, don't you? Early on in the history of the church, soon after the day of Pentecost, you get this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. We don't know an awful lot about them, but we do know they told a blatant lie, a deliberate lie about what they had given. Now, we might say a trivial thing. They died. Judged. Yes, they're saved. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but God punishes sin. We can get into a kind of glib, superficial understanding of grace. You you hear it sometimes. People will say to where something has gone wrong, I wonder if God is punishing me and some well-meaning person will say, oh no, God doesn't do that. Yes, he does. How do we know he does that? Because the Bible says so. And also because he's a good father. And good fathers will punish their children. It's part of being in a family. God is our Father. And so the writer to the Hebrews says that, doesn't he, in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12 and verse 5. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son isn't disciplined by his father. It's part of being in a family. A good father, if he loves his children, will sometimes discipline them. He doesn't enjoy doing it, but he's got to do it. He loves his children. The scripture says, if you withhold discipline from your child, you don't love your child. 
sentimental affection. Yes, but that's not love. Love means bringing discipline because you want to teach right behavior. Punishment is part of family life. And we're in God's family. And he's our father. And so, of course, he punishes. In 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17, it says, it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. Yes, we're God's family. And it's time for judgment to begin with the family of God. If it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who don't obey the gospel of God? Yeah, there's, there's punishment that comes to God's people. Israel, in the, in the Old Testament, Israel imagined time and again, they imagined that they were exempt. They imagined that because they were God's chosen people, other nations could get punished by God, but they wouldn't because they're God's chosen people. So they had a bit of a shock when Amos said to, brought the word of the Lord, you only have I chosen of all the families on earth, therefore I'll punish you. Yes, they are God's chosen people. And therefore, there's responsibility that goes with that. If they're in the family of God, that involves punishment. God punishes sin. God hates sin. Israel thought they were exempt. Under the new covenant, people with a misunderstanding of grace can also think we're exempt. We will never get punished because Jesus took it all. We will never be condemned. No doubt about it. We will never be condemned. But there is discipline and there is punishment. Now Paul says here in Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2, he says, we know, verse 2, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Based on truth, or more literally, according to truth. Some of the other versions soften that out and get rid of what it's saying. They say he, he judges rightly or something. So if you've got the ESV, just correct it. The NIV is correct. I enjoyed saying that. I don't often get an opportunity to say it, so... <clears throat> but this, the, God's judgment is based on truth. Objective truth. It's according to truth. We may think we know the truth, but actually the truth we think we know could end up condemning us. In John chapter 8, that same chapter where that woman is brought to Jesus, the dialogue goes on, the discussion goes on, uh, and in John 8 verse 31, it says this, to the Jews who had believed in him, just note that, the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples, then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They say, what do you mean set us free, we're not slaves? He says, yes you are. Anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Get the context. They think they believe. He says, the truth that you think you believe, the truth could set you free. Because actually, you're slaves. See, they're blind to it. Blind to it. They think they believe. They think they've understood this. They think they've received it. But actually, they're still enslaved. You see, the more we know, the more we are responsible to actually do something about it, to believe it, to apply it to ourselves. The truth 
should set us free. If the truth doesn't set us free, the truth could actually be the basis of our judgment. The things that we know. So I've been asking myself this week, how much do I know that I just fail to apply? Well, I haven't realised how it applies to me. How much will actually stand against me because I knew it, but I didn't do it. Judgment is based on truth. The more we know, the more responsible to obey it we are. The fact that some are worse than us doesn't mean to say that we are good. It's all too easy to see what's happening out there and think we're all right. Just imagine, you're on a a car journey, involves the motorway. So you're just chugging along the motorway, keeping up a steady speed, it's not too much traffic, you're able to maintain a steady speed, so you're chugging along at a steady 85 miles an hour, doing fine, and then suddenly in your mirror you see a car coming up, bombing up behind you, whoomp, it goes past. You shake your head in disbelief. You think, must have been doing 110 if anything. And maybe if it was, say, a Range Rover with all the bling on it, then your working class envy can come out and you start muttering dark things about these people. And you feel very just, what speed is, you know, horrified at what he's doing. Fact is, you're 20% over the speed limit. We can see what someone else is doing and fail to see, but I'm also guilty. And if you got pulled over or booked for speeding, you can see, yeah, but he was going faster. No, you were speeding. We can see others worse, we think. What about us? The fact that someone's worse than me doesn't make me good. And if If you shake your head at this person who has gone rocketing through well over 100 miles an hour, what you are indicating is you know the speed limit. And therefore, what Paul is saying here, you have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself. You're proving you know the law. They're breaking it. You're horrified how they're breaking it. But so are you. And the shock is God judges according to truth. And so Paul here is bringing a bit of a sobering wake-up call. He's lulled them into a false sense of security as they've listened to what he said through chapter 1 and then suddenly gets them between the eyes. And so he says in verse 21 in this same chapter, verse 21 He says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? We need to be teachable. We need to be sensitive to God's word so we're not hoping someone else is hearing it or we're not saying, I don't like this word and who is going to like this word this morning? No one. We can say, I don't like this. I wish we had heard something else. Whatever. But we need to be teachable. Sensitive to God's word and taking it very personally because we are responsible to respond to what God says. Remember the story that Jesus 
told that it's so often misapplied of two men, the wise man and the foolish man, each built a house. And the way that story is normally represented, and I guess everyone knows the story, but in case you didn't, there are two people who build a house, and one, ha- one builds his house on rock, and the other builds his house on sand, and when the storms come and the winds blow and so on, the house on the sand falls down, and the house on the rock remains firm. And the way that is normally represented is it is important then to build on God's word. That is the rock. The wise man built on the word of God. The foolish man just built on sand. No foundations, the house fell down. That is not the point of the story. Jesus gives the point of the story. He says, whoever hears these words of mine and doesn't do them is like a man building his house on sand. And whoever hears these words of mine and does what I say, he's building on rock. Both are, in a sense, building on the word of God. It's just only one is applying it. Only one is taking God's word personally and doing it. We need to be teachable. We need to hear God and say, Oh God, have I heard truth that should be changing my life and it's just, it's found its way into my notebook. It's got into my thought processes. Yes, I believe it. I now understand this doctrine, understand that. Has it stayed there? Or has it changed me? Am I sensitive? Am I teachable? Am I more concerned about the state of my own heart than I am aware of other people's. You have no excuse, Paul says, you who pass judgment on someone else. God holds us responsible. A bit of a shock. There will be judgment. But there's also some good news in verse 4 because there's space that is given to respond. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's patience, sorry, God's kindness leads you towards repentance. They're aware of God's grace. They assume that because of God's grace, they need fear, no punishment. They're enjoying the grace of God. Thing is, they're not employing the grace of God, and the grace of God is to be employed to get us right with God. And so he he speaks of the riches of God's kindness, tolerance, and patience. And they are riches. God is wonderfully great. And all of these things are wonderfully real. His kindness. That's a a word that we can say is just a bit bland, kind. Actually, it's a rich word. The kindness of God. God is kind towards you. Yes, He will punish sin, but he's kind towards you. He loves you. He's tolerant. He's patient. Doesn't it ever amaze you how much God lets you get away with? It certainly amazes me how much he allows me to get away with before he actually points to it. Things that he addresses in my life, and I think, Why did he never address that 20 years ago or 30 years ago or and so on? (laughs) Why does he allow time to go before he deals with things? He's incredibly patient, kind, tolerant and firm. And God's kindness is not 
so that we say it doesn't matter. God's kindness is to give us time to sort some things out. Not realizing God's kindness leads you towards repentance. The wise response to the grace of God is to use the grace of God in order to repent. You might say, I repented when I became a Christian. I repented of my sin. I turned in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you telling me I need to repent again? Repentance means changing your mind. Repentance means not only changing your mind, but as a result of that, changing your behavior. Yes, we turn when we are first saved. We turn from independence and we turn towards Christ. We turn from what we've been involved in and we commit our lives to Christ. That is once for all. But having repented, we stay repented. <laughs> we stay repentant that we, we, we will not tolerate in our lives anything that God dislikes. Anything that is a barrier between us and him. And time and again we need to sort ourselves out. Time and again we need to turn. And the grace of God, which is wonderful, the riches of his kindness, his tolerance and patience, yes, let's enjoy it. But because of it, let's get right with God and not say it doesn't matter. He is so benevolent. He is so wonderfully kind and benign. He will never, ever tell me off. No, he's a good father. A benevolent parent is a bad parent. But a good parent is someone who loves their child and confronts things. And God does. And so, the scripture tells us, Paul writing to his friend Titus in Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. Titus 2 verse 11 says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what's good. That's what the grace of God is about. The grace of God gives us a relationship with God that we could never have deserved. We could never have achieved it. Wonderfully, freely, we're brought into God's family. That's amazing grace. And that grace teaches us to deal with sin, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. The whole point of the grace of God was a people who would be purified for God, a people that are his own, eager to do what's good. Grace isn't saying no punishment doesn't matter. God loves me anyway. Grace is, I, changes my heart so I'm eager to do what's good. And I will not tolerate anything that my wonderful Savior does not like. Because he's wonderful. Because I love him. How can I come and worship him and also worship stuff that he hates? Isn't it, it can't happen. No, grace teaches me to say no to everything that is ungodly. There are things in my life I never realized it was ungodly, but as I walk with God, I suddenly realize how ungodly it was. What do I do with that? Excuse it? No, I deal with it. Because the grace of God enables that. That's, that's what we've come into. 
the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience that brings us to a new place, a place of repentance and cleansing and purity and just enjoying God with no clouds in between. Grace can soften our hearts. Grace can change our heart. And we need to hear God's correction and his encouragement that enables us to deal with things. So how can we become aware of things that we've never seen? If we have become kind of just desensitized and maybe you're listening to this and you think, well, yeah, I'm okay, but I'm not aware of anything in my life. I'm not aware of anything I've got to change. I don't think I'm a hypocrite. I think that as far as I'm aware, I'm walking with God. How do we become aware of the things that we don't see? Well, why is Paul saying this to these people? The Word of God penetrates. The Word of God convicts. And so he's shocking them because he wants them to hear it. And this morning, the Word of God with the Spirit of God, can bring your focus on things, my attention. So this week, I've, I've lived with this this week. And the Word of God, working in me, has made me aware of some things, some wrong attitudes and things. I was just concerned about other people. I couldn't see my own heart. And God's shown me my heart. Our response is crucial. When Jesus had that last meal with his disciples, he shocked them. Because he said something to them that completely took their breath away. His friends around the table and he drops this bombshell, one of you is going to betray me. And their response was so good. None of them apparently could identify with it. Obviously Judas could, but how self-deceived was he? But everyone around the table didn't say, it's not me. Well, actually, they said, is it me? Surely not me. That's a good response. Is it me? Is it me? Rather than not me, but a sensitive spirit, open to hear God. That verse in 1 Corinthians 11 that we looked at, if we judged ourselves... You know, we, should. We, we don't want to get introspective. We don't want to turn in on ourselves. We can be over-worried about being introspective. However, the Bible tells us to judge ourselves. Paul, writing to the Galatians, draws attention to an attitude of just being judgmental towards other people. He says, if someone's caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Not everyone would do that. Some people would just point an accusing finger. So he goes on to say, each one should test his own actions without comparing himself to somebody else. It's easy to look at someone else and say, I'm better than that. Yeah, well, test yourself by yourself. Look at your own heart. What has God shown you? We should examine ourselves. We should judge ourselves. And we should ensure that as best we know how, we're hearing God that God's word doesn't just settle in our minds. It gets into our heart, our behavior, into our actions. We examine ourselves before God in grace, knowing it's God's kindness. God's kindness would take you by the hand right now. God's kindness would take me by the hand and lead us to repentance. 
to deal with some things because God's got blessing for us. It's about his grace. It's about what he wants to do. And it's about, about what can't be done till this and that issue is dealt with. We don't earn anything from God, from God, but things can get in the way. And the kindness of God would say, come on, come on, this has gone on long enough. I've tolerated that long enough. I've been patient long enough. Now it's time to deal with it. You might think, the Lord might, would say to us, you might think that because I still bless you that that thing doesn't matter. You might think that I'm, I'm, I'm not even bothered about it because I continue to speak to you. Oh, I bother. Oh, I'm aware of it. It's time to start getting some things out of the way so our walk with God can bring into our lives all the blessing that God surely has got stored up for us. This is not a pleasant passage to look at, but it's in the Bible. It's what we need. Paul knew these people in Rome needed it. They're living in a godless environment, shocked by the stuff that's going on around. They needed to be shocked about what's happening in their own hearts as well. Oh, sure, it's terrible out there. But what about in here? That's what we can deal with. That's what we need to deal with so that we can move on in God.